So have you ever heard of quiet politics? <laughs> yeah, a little sarcasm there. Uh, quiet politics. I was reading an article this week uh, by Matthew Gagnon. I think I'm saying his, right, his name right. He's a policy executive in Maine. And the title of his article was this, Maine's Pleasantly Quiet Governor's Race. And this is what he wrote. Each of the four candidates running actually seems to be a genuinely nice person. Read that often in the political article. He goes on, I've spent time to varying degrees with all four, and each is generally thoughtful, pleasant, and interested in talking to you about their own ideas and avoids cheap political attacks. Indeed, most of them seem to have a particular aversion to saying bad things about other people, including the people they're running against. That, I think, is not only a good thing, but is pretty refreshing. This, this isn't like random city council, all right? This is the governor race, okay? He goes on. Politics will never be entirely cleaned up, of course, and even the nicest of people end up sanctioning a fair amount of negativity. Outside groups will, no doubt, attack in the coming weeks while the candidates stay out of the scrum. But speaking as one politically and emotionally exhausted guy who is more than a little burned out on the never-ending outrage and vitriol, I am happy to see a somewhat boring, quiet campaign. Are you like Matthew this morning? Have you kind of had a week when it comes to the climate of our community and the climate of our country that you are politically exhausted? Just, just exhausted. Or maybe you're emotionally exhausted. Or maybe you're mentally exhausted. Maybe you're physically exhausted. Maybe you're spiritually exhausted. Maybe you're exhausted because of things in your marriage. Maybe you're exhausted as a parent. Maybe you're exhausted with your parents. Maybe you're exhausted with work at school, or maybe you're exhausted because of projects at work. Maybe you're exhausted with that jerky kid that sits next to you in math, you know. Or, or maybe you're exhausted with the lady in counting, you know. Maybe you're exhausted because you're waiting for that callback from the doctor's office. Just exhausted. Just, just having a, a hard time processing a lot of things in life. And maybe you're like Matthew. You would welcome something that is somewhat boring and quiet. <laughs> something boring and quiet might actually sound good. Something that might help you escape and no longer be exhausted from fear and worry and stress and anger. Sounds pretty good. Well, one of the greatest kings that ever lived actually found something just like that. He pretty much kind of knew about it his whole life, but it didn't start sinking in in a deep way until he got about 60 years old. Then, then it started connecting. So what did he find? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 7. King David says, rest in the Lord. Rest 
in the Lord. That, that's what he found for his exhaustion. The word for rest here in the Hebrew, it means to be silent or to be still, to, to wait or to be dumb. <laughs> wait a minute. You're saying to get rid of my fear and my worry and my stress and my anger, I got to be dumb? That sounds dumb. Well, no, not exactly, but kind of yes and, and kind of no. The, the better picture here is what it means to be dumbfounded. Dumbfounded meaning being astonished or, or being amazed. But dumbfounded in what? Astonished in what? Amazed in what? And, and what kind of amazement are we talking about? Well, it's the kind of amazement that the groom has when the doors open to the back and, and he sees his bride for the first time. It's the kind of amazement that a mom who has spent nine months being uncomfortable and, and hours of pain and labor when they see their baby for the first time, or the parents that have been through a 12-month process of, of paperwork and, and money, and finally that, that child they've been pursuing from overseas comes and, and they see that their adoption is now finalized. They see that child. Or maybe in a more practical way, you know, it's like being in the car all day long on the interstate. You know, the whole family, and Cousin Eddie, and Aunt Edna, everybody in the car all at the same time. And I mean, you, you finally get there after a long day. And, and you walk out and you can feel the water from the waves trickling on your feet. And as far as you can see, there's just blue, blue ocean, blue sky. See, what David is saying is you can have that moment in any moment, in any moment. And the way he says it is, is you don't have to get married to get it. And you don't have to have a baby or adopt a child to discover it. And you don't have to drive all day on the interstate to get to it. And you don't have to back the right political candidate to feel it. One day, the Apostle Paul was talking to a group of folks. They were kind of known as the wisest and, and most discerning, the, the best decision makers in the whole country. And this is what Paul said to them. Acts 17, beginning with verse 23. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. They were covering their bases, you know. Oh, we have this God and this God and this God. Hey, there may be a God we don't know about. Let's make a statue to them, and we'll put a little sign down there, to an unknown God. And this is how Paul responds. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far 
from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Paul stood up in front of these folks and he said, look, the rest and the quiet that you are needing for your exhausted mind and your exhausted heart and your exhausted soul, it's not that far away. You can find that kind of rest, that kind of peace in the God who created you. The one who created who you are. You know, science and math, they give us some fantastic details about the the how and the when and the where and the, the why and the what. But the who, the who is always connected to the one who is an unknown God to so many. He doesn't have to be unknown, though. He's the reason you live. He's the reason you move. He's the reason you exist. You know, even if somebody doesn't believe in God, I mean, it's hard for you to to look at like a baby, a newborn baby, and, and not just be amazed in wonder at human life and the human body. There's, there's something just about creation itself, even just a casual look at anything in creation that kind of causes us to gravitate toward the word wonder. It's inescapable. Isaac Newton was one of the greatest mathematicians of the 1600s. I told Brad earlier I love this picture for those of y'all who can see or are live streaming. It's like the Teen Beat magazine version of Isaac Newton, you know. Seems like every version I've ever seen, he was like the old guy sitting in the chair, and this is the cool young guy, the cool young mathematician. I guess there's cool young mathematicians, I don't know. Isaac Newton was, was well known for his mathematics, was well known, well known as a physicist. His work is still revered today. He's probably most well known for his mathematical law of gravity which incidentally seems to have been developed from the greatest gift that he has ever given any high school student, calculus. It's been noted, though, that during those days when Isaac Newton was sharing all of his information, his finding, his hypothesis, that the people of the time, they thought that his ideas were superstitious, illogical magic. They had nothing to do with it. Robert H. Nelson is a professor at the University of Maryland. He was writing about Newton's thoughts on gravity. This is what he said. How could two distant objects in the solar system be drawn toward one another, acting according to a precise mathematical law? How? Nelson goes on. Indeed, Newton made strenuous efforts over his lifetime to find a natural explanation, but in the end... He conceded failure. He could only say that it is the will of God. He saw the wonder of the science. He saw the wonder of the math. But they seemed like unknown gods to him because they couldn't be explained. And so his explanation was, I don't have the scientific mathematical explanation that makes any of this make sense. So the only thing that makes sense is to attribute it to the one God who is known and who was and is and is to come. 
Eugene Wigner was a Nobel Prize winning physicist and mathematician. He once wrote this, the enormous usefulness of mathematics and the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious, and there is no rational explanation for it. No rational explanation for the mystery and the wonder of science and math. Nelson responds to his comment this way, in other words, as something supernatural, it takes the existence of some kind of a God to make the mathematical underpinnings of the universe comprehensible. In other words, if it doesn't make sense, the only way it could possibly make sense is to say that there is a God. So, why all this science and math? Well, just to say this, that the notion of the unknown God not being unknown is not a crazy fairy tale. The notion of the unknown God being known is, is very real. And you can fight against it. Anyone can fight against it. But at the end of the day, we were created fearfully and wonderfully to know that the unknown God is not unknown. From the inside out, we know this to be true even when we cannot rationally explain it. Apostle Paul was writing to some Christians in Rome. This is what he told them. Romans 10, verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. You are hearing truth right now. As you sit here listening to songs and preaching and prayers, you are listening to truth right now. It's not truth that's far off. It's truth that's, that's here. It's very near to you. J. Vernon McGee said this, It is available right where you are sitting. A great many folk think they have to go to an altar in some sort of meeting to be saved, but salvation is available to you right where you are right now. Right now, right where you are, salvation is available to you. You do not need me. You do not need the front of the church to be saved. Salvation is available to you right now. How many of our stories don't involve being at the front of a church and shaking a preacher's hand when it came to our salvation? How many of our stories were we were sitting in the car, or we were in our bedroom, or we were walking down the road, or we were in the hospital, and God captured our hearts? Because the word of truth is near to us anywhere and always. It's how God makes his truth to work. And what is it that's available to us? Well, Paul kept going. Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And then with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Salvation is near. Salvation is available. Salvation is right where you are right now. So, how about you? Have you 
truly confessed? Have you truly believed? Have you truly been saved? If you have, then Paul has some crazy, fantastic news for you. Listen to verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your parents are going to disappoint you. Your kids are going to disappoint you. Your grandkids are going to disappoint you. Your neighbors are going to disappoint you. Your friends are going to disappoint you. Your teammates and your classmates and your workmates, they're going to disappoint you. Your pastors, your ministers, your teachers, your politicians, they're going to disappoint you. In fact, you're even going to disappoint yourself. However, it is impossible to be disappointed if you are believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus. It's impossible for you to be disappointed. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. The power of of heaven has created this unbelievable story in this one person, Jesus Christ. And life and death and eternal life is all wrapped up and found in Jesus. It's why we make such a big deal out of Jesus. God raised him from the dead. We can't be disappointed because that power has never stopped. But somebody might say, well, maybe it was a one-hit wonder, you know? Maybe that's it. Maybe that's all God could pull off. Listen again. He is the God who made the world and all things in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with the hands of people. He's not served by humans as though he really needs anything. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is all of that and more. Yeah, it's not a one-hit wonder. He is the known God, the one true God. Here's why we say these things on Sunday morning. Because nobody in your house has those things. Nobody at your school or or at your job has any of those things said about them. There's nobody in the state house. There's nobody in the governor's mansion. There's nobody in a presidential mansion. There's nobody in a castle. There's nobody in a palace. There's nobody in a holy yurt on the side of a mountain somewhere in the middle of somewhere that has these things said about them. Only the known God who was and is and is to come. No one else. He's the only one who cannot and will not disappoint you. And that's why King David said, hey, you know what? Rest in that God. Put everything you have in that God. Now, in Psalm 37, what David is not saying when he says, rest in the Lord, he is saying, be silent. He is saying, be still. He is saying, wait. He is saying, be dumbfounded, be be amazed, be astonished. What he's not saying is, turn a blind eye to problems in your life. 
Turn a a blind eye to problems in your community. Turn a a blind eye to problems in the church. Turn a a blind eye to problems in your country. Turn a, a blind eye to problems in the world. He's not saying that. No, in fact, we would find that the whole of Scripture would tell us the opposite, right? Scripture would tell us to to pray and to plan and to prepare. Scripture would tell us to work and watch and worship. Scripture would tell us to serve and to speak and to sacrifice. Scripture would tell us to give and to, to go and to grow. Scripture would tell us to vow and to venture and to vote. Scripture would tell us to to run, to reason, to reach. Scripture would tell us to educate and to energize and to evangelize. No, Scripture would tell us don't turn a blind eye. Scripture said get out there, get going for the glory of God, love God first and most, and serve others. But Scripture will also say to us, do not fret. Do not freak out. Do not frantically watch Fox and CNN or any other news outlet and hear the news and think that anything that's ever said in any of those places will for one second dethrone the God who is on yonder throne. It can't happen. It's who he is. He can't disappoint because our God is greater and our God is stronger and our God is higher than any other. And if we really want to change our homes, if we really want to change our communities, if we really want to change our country and our world, then we have to rest in the Lord. Like, that's it. We have to rest in the Lord. Why? Why should we do that? Why is he qualified for our rest? Well, there's about a gazillion reasons. So, for the sake of time, let's let's just go with one, okay? In John 14, verse 3, Jesus said, I'll come again. That's a pretty good one. (laughs) You know, you can watch the news with that, all right? You can read your social media post with that. See, the reason we rest in God is because this promise from Jesus that he is returning has every reason to be believed. There's not a single promise that God's ever made that he didn't fulfill. There's not a single promise about Jesus that God ever made that has not been fulfilled. And so when Jesus says he's coming again, he's he's coming again. And the return of Jesus Christ What it does is on the days when it seems like the world is spinning out of control in chaotic evil, the return of Jesus reminds us that the old song is true. He's got the whole world in his hands. Someone might say, well, I'll tell you, when I I read the news and, and watch the news, it doesn't seem like God's got the whole world in his hands. There's earthquakes, there's tsunamis, there's hurricanes, there's craziness in D.C., there's war. I I don't know. I don't know if God's got the world in his hands or not. So how do we answer the problems of the world? How do we answer the problems of evil that we see in the world? Is there an answer? Well, yes and no. 
there's not an answer that's going to buy everybody a Coke and teach them to sing in perfect harmony, right? That kind of answer is not out there. But if you are believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus as a true believer and follower of him, there is an answer. Now, let me say this, though. It's not the answer that some of us want to hear. It's just not. I'm I'm getting ready to give it. And when I give that answer, some of you are going to roll your eyes. If not outside, maybe inside. We do. We, we find ourselves rolling the eyes of our heart sometimes. And why? Well, for some reason, we, we have these interesting desires as humans. And, and it's not unique to this time in history. It's, it's always been like this, even since the garden. And for some reason, we, we kind of we want to be angry. We want to fight. We want to argue. We want to debate. We want to protest something. We want to write something, email something, post something, text something, scream something, yell something. And we don't want to listen to anyone who has anything to say to us that does not support what we want to hear. And that includes not wanting to listen to the one who made us with fear and wonder. So I pray God will be merciful to us as we hear this answer together and that we would not roll our eyes, but we would go, oh, so, so here's, here's the answer, you know, to the problems of life and the problems even of evil, particularly for us as believers. Rest in the Lord. Don't roll your eyes. It, it's, it's tempted, and we want to inside. Ah. Resting in the Lord's not going to fix our country. Resting in the Lord's not going to fix our community. Resting in the Lord's not going to fix the evil in the world. I have to say to you this, I, I'm confused at why we think we can fix it. Jesus promised us that the evil would come. So are we going to be the fixers of the universe or are we going to be the ones that step out into the world? We speak out, we pray, we serve, we work, we energize, we educate, we evangelize, we do everything God's calling us to do. But first and most, we say, this is my Father's world. And I'll rest me in that thought. David's 60 years old. If you're you're between the ages of 55 and 65 in here, what you mad about right now? (laughs) What do you not like? If you're between the ages of 15 and 25, what are you mad about? What do you not like? I can tell you that, that David was entering senior adult life And David didn't do everything right either. But David said, man, I tell you, one thing I've found that I can hang my life on, I can rest in the Lord. I can be still and silent and wait and be dumbfounded by my God who fearfully and wonderfully created me. 
How do we do that, though? How do we rest in the Lord? It sounds lofty. It sounds theological. How do we rest in the Lord? Adrian Siegel is a, a wife and a mom and a grandmom in Minnesota. This is what she writes. In my 20s and 30s, though I deeply, though I believed deeply in God, had an overflowing heart of worship and gratitude for Jesus, was growing in my knowledge of God's word and my love for him, and I enjoyed a rich prayer life, I still really struggled to be at peace in the circumstances of life. You don't have to show hands. I'll raise for all of us, right? She goes on. Real world, real world circumstances, sleepless nights, endless diapers, and other mindless daily duties related to caring for little ones. The tremendous burden of responsibility training up my children in the way that they should go. Understanding how to nurture my marriage amid the demands of being parents. Learning to be comfortable with the comparative lowly status of being a stay-at-home mom in an achieving world. Wrestling with lust for material things and so on. All of those things threw gasoline on the brittle tender of my anxious mind. Nah, it's a lot of us, right? (laughs) Man, there's just too much going on. I can't think. I'm becoming more anxious and more stressed out. She says this, my default responses to worry and stress over and feel responsible for these things got in the way of my being able to live in and benefit from the new identity I inherited when I surrendered my life to Jesus. That's huge. Identity. That word is the most significant and strategic way to rest in the Lord your identity in Christ. So what is a Christian's identity in Christ? Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says this, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a huge transfer, right? We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of death, out of the kingdom of fear, out of the kingdom of fret. We live in the kingdom of fret way too often. But Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection, he has rescued us. And we have been transferred into his kingdom, the kingdom of light and life and hope and love and grace. And I think what's even cooler is when we transfer into that kingdom, we become a part of the family of God. And being in the family of God, (laughs) unlike all of our families, there's no disappointment. I'm not talking about us. We'll disappoint each other as believers. I'm just saying that our God, the head of our family, will not and cannot disappoint. Adrian goes on to describe some promises that God has given us and how these promises help our identity. Really want you to soak these up. I'm just going to do three of them. She writes, The God of the universe has chosen me and loved me and was willing to sacrifice his own son that he might call me his daughter. The creator God has claimed me. What? Love matters more than this. Second one. 
this God has erased all uncertainties about my future by adopting me as his own. We can't go back to the kingdom of darkness. It won't happen. We won't be sent back because we've been adopted into his family. A third one. This God is working good for me in all things because I love him and have been called to his purposes. Listen to this. He is not waiting to punish me or my loved ones if I get it wrong. That doesn't mean we have a license to sin. But as we've said even recently, God's not standing over us with a yellow legal pad waiting for us to mess up. It's not his character. And what message does our identity in Christ ultimately have for us? We'll call on Paul one more time. Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who's against us? If, if God is for us, who is against us? That truth is designed to create rest in our hearts. That truth is designed to help us be silent, to help us be still, to help us wait, to help us be dumbfounded that we are part of the family of God. On January 14, 1877, Charles Spurgeon was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, London. And toward the end of his sermon, this is what he said. Rich sinners think poor saints are great fools. You young man over there, you own a fine horse, and you have a splendid house and garden, or you have a flourishing business and very bright prospects. But I could pick out some old woman here, and thank God there are many such who come to the tabernacle regularly. Poor souls who have little else but the grace of God to comfort them. I could bring this old woman up for you to see. Her clothes are darned in a hundred places, or else she would be in rags. She works very hard to earn the little that keeps her out of the workhouse. She has not many comforts, yet sometimes when we get a shake of her hand, we find she has some comforts, though they are of a sort that, is sort that this young man does not understand. And then he says this, well, now, come here, my good sister. Do you see that young man over there? He never has rheumatism in his bones. He never has to sit shivering in wintertime because there's no fire in the grate. He never has to say to his landlord, I do not know where I shall get the week's rent. He never has to pinch himself and live on nothing but a small piece of bread and butter for a couple of days. No, never does he have to live like that. And then he says this, I ask her, will you change places with this young gentleman? Well, she says, I should like to know first whether he has an interest in Christ. When I tell her that he has not, I am sure her answer would be, change places with him? No, never. I'd sooner starve and have Christ as my Savior. Then own all the wealth and comforts of this world and be without Christ. That's 
how you rest in the Lord. You see Jesus as the treasure of all treasures. And no one and nothing will ever look better to you than Jesus. And you wouldn't trade him for anything. So, I graciously ask us, as we listen to David's advice today, will we roll our eyes or will we lift our eyes and rest in the Lord?